you. You've uh, helped guide our thinking and our hearts to one of the great themes of Christmas, which is hope and thinking about the light of the world. Because when we think about hope, it's often best and often throughout history uh, in language, it's uh, one of the great contrasts is the darkness that surrounds a season of great longing and need that's pierced because of light. And there's a reason that, that the world and human beings generally have something in common, and it's, it's longing for the world to be different than what it is. And when I say longing, I'm not talking about just my hope for my favorite college football team to be awarded with the college football playoff. That, that's a hope, that's a wish, it's not even a hope, that's just a wish and, and a desire. We can, we can wish for a lot of things, some things are, are needs, some things are just merely wants, but... When the Bible describes hope, it's talking about something different, but it comes out of a place that that we all share. It's a place of longing. And we long as human beings because we know things are broken, and we know that things get distorted, and we long for that which is broken to be fixed again and put back right, and that which is distorted to be smoothed out and to be made as it was intended to be. There's a a longing in the human soul. And uh, we sometimes long because of rejection or isolation because we seek out a meaningful connection, certainly with other people, but underneath it all, we, we long for a meaningful connection with God. And until we have that meaningful connection, there is always, down deep, I believe, a a longing for something more in our life, something different than what up till now we've experienced if we've not connected with Jesus. And out of longing, then hope can be aroused, but there are certain things that, that have to be there for hope to take root. For hope to be aroused, belief that things can change, has to be present. There has to be a belief that that things can be different. And then there has to be a confidence that something, and biblically someone, can actually come and make a difference in making this change. Light is what we long for when everything else around us seems dark or in the issue that's so so meaningful. Uh, The Bible describes in one of the well-known passages about Christmas, It helps us see about the light, and it describes Jesus as being the light, the hope that enters into the darkness of the world and into the darkness, perhaps, of your life even today. And here's what the Gospel writer John says. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning. Through Him all things were made. Without Him nothing was made that has been made. In him was life, and that life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, but the darkness has not understood it. The word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. We have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only, who came from the Father, full of grace and truth. This is the way Jesus is described at Christmas. The light coming into the darkness. Hope that comes into the the seasons and the moments of longing in our life. And hope that comes to deal with the deepest longing. And that is our, our deep separation from God apart from Jesus Christ. Christmas history includes a well-known story of a guiding light uh, that took some faraway travelers Eventually to Bethlehem and help them to meet and encounter Jesus. Matthew chapter 2, we're going to settle into a verse here.
for the rest of our time. And you know the story probably. If you don't know the story, you've seen the images of these wise men. We often sing about them, magi, the way the Bible describes them as uh, strange, exotic travelers from places unknown or at least not described fully in the scriptures. Christian tradition tells us a little about them, but the Bible doesn't say much. We just know that these, these, we don't even know how many there were. We just know that three gifts were offered. I always want to say three, but that's, we really don't know that for sure. But there were these, these people who came, they end up in Jerusalem, the seat of, of Palestinian authority, and uh, where the religious center, of course, was in the first century for uh, Jewish people particularly. And uh, here they come, and they go to King Herod. If you know anything about King Herod, he was a bloodthirsty guy. He was not afraid to invoke violence to protect his throne and, and his power. And the people knew that when Herod ain't happy, ain't nobody happy. Right? And so when the Magi show up in town, they, they come with this disturbing question. We have seen this, this peculiar light in the sky and has drawn us to this place because we have come to seek the King of the Jews. Someone has now been born King of the Jews. And Herod was disturbed and all of Jerusalem with him. And so Herod, to try to understand what's happening, he calls together his religious scholars and those who know about the Hebrew Scriptures. And he says, where is it that the Messiah, the one who we've been waiting for, where do the Scriptures tell us that he is to be born? And here's what the Bible, their response is to Herod in Matthew 2.5. Their response was, in Bethlehem in Judea, they replied. For this is what the prophet has written. But you, Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah. For out of you will come a ruler who will be the shepherd of my people, Israel. Out of you, Bethlehem. You see, uh, 12 times in the Gospel of Matthew, 12 different moments, Matthew uh, connected our understanding of who Jesus as a person historically real in, in life and space and time and uh, walked real earth and touched real things and interacted with real people and how this Jesus, this man, was also God in the flesh. And 12 different times Matthew's Gospel points to prophetic um, fulfillment in the life and coming of Jesus. Some of them were certainly things that were utterly out of uh, Jesus' control, like where he was born. I was born in Alva, Oklahoma. And you know how much control I had over that? <laughs> Tell me, how much control did I have over where I was born? Zero. Did you have any control over where you were born? Of course you didn't. You might say, well, Jesus did. And if you're saying that, then you're already saying uh, something about who He is. And you'd be right. But, but from a human perspective... He comes to, to Bethlehem, and I want us to focus as we uh, fix our minds in a few moments around the Lord's Supper, to focus on the, the place of Bethlehem. Because 12 different times Matthew is trying to help us see that the Old Testament, the Hebrew Scriptures, the, the prophetic writings among those Scriptures are pointing to Jesus. And we see it throughout the Christmas story. And it's important because what the Bible is telling us, what God is screaming at us, is that I have made promises in the past and I have fulfilled these promises. I've kept my promises. And that's so important because if we can't trust God to keep His promises, then God is not trustworthy. 
And so after all of these long centuries and generations, Jesus has now shown up on the scene and the scripture is telling us that he is the long-awaited one. Matthew 5, uh, 2, 5, in Bethlehem, for this is what the prophet has written. He's referring back to Micah 5, 2, and words that were spoken 700 years before Jesus and he shares those with us. But you, Bethlehem, Out of you will come a ruler who will be my shepherd for Israel. Now, Bethlehem is is an interesting place in the history of God's people because there was another time, much earlier, when other visitors went to the town of Bethlehem. And we're told about that in 1 and 2 Samuel, uh, when the prophet Samuel is sent by God to this place in Bethlehem, and he's told to go to this particular father named Jesse, and Jesse had all of these sons, and one of them, God had prompted the prophet's heart to say, one of them, one of Jesse's boys, will be anointed king to replace Saul. And so Samuel immediately shows up there in front of Jesse, and he says, line them up. This is Bryce paraphrase. Line up your sons. And, you know, like a good father, he takes the oldest, the the strongest, the most mature, the most responsible, the most accomplished, and he puts them here first in line, and and then he puts the second born, and on down the list it goes, almost like you can see this progression from oldest, most responsible, most likely to be king, to the youngest, the shortest, the weakest, the meekest, the least, the least likely to become king, and God speaks to uh, who is it? Samuel. And uh, says, "These none of these are it. And Samuel looks at Jesse. You remember the story probably? And he says, is this all you've got? Bryce <laughs> paraphrase. Is this all you've got? And Jesse says, I, I can picture him kind of kicking at the floor. Well, there's one more. He's, he's the youngest. He's the run of the litter. He's out. He's, he's not real accomplished yet. He's out with the sheep. He's out there doing stuff. And Samuel says, go, go fetch him. And he does. And God stirs Samuel's heart. And he knows that this is the one to be anointed. In that moment, he anoints him. And later, he, David is described as the one who would become the shepherd of Israel. The one who would guide the people to God and help them walk with God. That was the role of David. And when we open up the New Testament in the first century, we find uh, a people who uh, were, were waiting for somebody to come in, in the spirit and, and like David, who would come and lead the people. They had been in political oppression for a long time. They, they had this land that they claimed as their own, yet they had no control over it. And they had no sense of freedom as a people. And um, it was it was a struggle for them. And David is the one who's admired. David is the one who's the model of God's anointed one for the people. And the people were waiting and hoping and they were longing for this one like David to come and to rescue them and and to set things straight again, to take the broken things and to mend them, to take the things that have been distorted and to repair and fix them and to bring a light into the world. And Jesus shows up on the scene. And the Bible is going to great lengths to help us understand that Jesus is the Messiah. Jesus is the answer. Jesus is the fulfillment of the promise. And is God keeping His promise? He's making a very clear picture here. In fact, in Matthew chapter 1, we, we're given this great family tree of Jesus, this lineage of Jesus. And it's this particular lineage is crafted in such a way so that we will on purpose connect Jesus to David. Because that was so important 
to the Jewish mind of the first century as they were waiting for the Messiah to come. He would be one who was connected to David uh, and one who would be like David. One who would come and, and bring them hope. He would pull them out of their misery and replace that with joy. He would take them away from oppression and into a, a new season of health and freedom. And their hope would rest in this one life who was to come into the world. And so that's what Christmas is all about. Is God telling you that He has stepped into history in a way unlike any other moment in all of history. And the Christmas history continues. We know in Luke chapter 2, there's another journey to Bethlehem. And this is the cute, sentimental part of it, right? We, we sing songs about it. And it gives us the warm fuzzies. This pregnant Mary hasn't been with her betrothed husband yet. Yet somehow, mysteriously, she is pregnant. God has done something utterly unique. We're going to talk about that next week. But here comes Mary and Joseph and God works in history and He works through the most powerful kingdom on earth to, to arrange the census to happen. And because of the census now, Joseph has to go back to Bethlehem to register himself to be part of the census. And it just so happens, the way God does things, that while they were there, guess who was born? Jesus so that he would come out of Bethlehem. And God went to a lot of effort, didn't he? To make this happen. So that we could have this record. So that we could connect the dots and see that Jesus is the long-awaited fulfillment of this longing. And he is the one who steps into history to provide us hope. See, Bethlehem literally is a word translated that means house of bread. And as the house of bread, Jesus is the one who desires to step into our lives in order to feed us spiritually, to nourish us daily. Part of His model prayer for us is that we would pray that uh, God's daily bread would be known in our lives. And I think in part what He's asking us to pray is that we would know every day of our lives that we would turn our attention to God and open ourselves to Him so that we know that spiritually and really in every facet of our life that we are nourished and connected and loved and held and guided by the presence of Emmanuel God with us. There may be some today who are looking for hope. Maybe you have a longing this morning for God to touch you in a particular area of your life. Maybe you are longing for some sort of healing or renewal that only the Jesus born in Bethlehem in the house of bread can bring. Maybe today you're longing for a connection with God. Maybe for the very first time to really be connected to the living God in a meaningful way. Jesus comes. He Himself said that He is the bread of life. Maybe today you're longing for God to give you an overflowing heart that flows and spills over with hope. Because maybe you need a renewed sense of confidence that even though things have not gone as you had hoped in your life up to this point, that you need a renewed sense of confidence that God is still in control. And that God is still uh, undergirding you and God is still leading you into the future He has for you. A heart overflowing with hope. But hope, remember, is built in a belief that God can actually do something. 
that God cares enough about you to do something. That's what Christmas is telling you. It's unimaginable that God would go to such lengths in order to enter into the world so that you might know the fullness of life that he has to give to you. And that's just what he wants for you is for you to know him. For you to know forgiveness and cleansing and to step into a new life with Him. As we center our focus now on the Lord's Supper, we focus on two elements, of course. We focus on a cup that reminds us of not just the birth of Jesus, but that He grew up and became a man and He went to a cross to die. And that that dying was on purpose. As the perfect substitute now, He is able to cleanse us of sin. And so that cup reminds us of His life that was poured out as a willing sacrifice because of His love for you. The other element, of course, is bread. Jesus reminds us that He is the bread of life. He was born in the house of bread. He comes as the bread of life. And every time we take this meal, it is a reminder that He is the one who daily nourishes you with His love and with His presence. With the deacons who are helping serve today, would you join me? Here on the front pews. One of the great realities of knowing that God is a promise maker and a promise keeper is knowing that if God has made promises in the past and He has kept them and He has, is that. Because God has made one last promise that is still yet to come. And that is the promise that He will come again and make all things new. Everything that is today broken and out of whack will be made right again. The things that that, that leave us longing for something more and better and different and wholeness will be given fully in the, the coming, the final coming of Jesus in the world. And when the first... Believers around those first tables in those different cities around the Mediterranean world. They gather around the table, maybe something like this, maybe a little different, but, but they would focus not just looking back on the death of Jesus, but they would also focus on the future promise that Jesus is coming back again. In fact, the Apostle Paul in 1 Corinthians 11, when he's describing how the church there before him, he's giving them instructions. He he says every time that we drink this cup and eat this bread, we proclaim the death of Jesus, looking back until He comes again. And if God has kept His promises in the past and the coming of Jesus as Messiah, it's the greatest demonstration that God will keep even after a long season because God's timetable is not ours. That He has kept His promises in the past and we now wait for the fulfillment of His final promise and as we share the Lord's Supper, it's good to be reminded of that today. Bread and cup. On the night that Jesus was betrayed, He took bread. And it was blessed, it was broken, it was passed and shared around that table. And we are reminded that we are to do this in remembrance of Him. Lord Jesus, we thank you that you are indeed the bread of life. And that we we come and we are reminded in sharing this meal that you are the one who nourishes our soul. 
You invite us to come and be with you and, and to sit and, and enjoy and savor your presence in our lives. And we want to do that more today. If there's anything in our hearts this morning that, that remains unconfessed, sin and that, that is hindering our walk with you, we, we pray that you would reveal that to us, Holy Spirit, and in this moment, this moment, that we would confess it to you and seek your cleansing in a fresh way so that we can rejoice in you over our life. And it's in the name of Jesus that we pray together.